be reading for you and preaching for you out of Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 9 to the end of the chapter, verse 20. Hear now the word of God. Nehemiah speaking. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night, by the valley gate, to the dragon spring, and to the dun gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down, and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. And when Sanballat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this account. We thank you for preserving this account for us to see how you have continually loved and cared and preserved your people. Thank you, Father, for the hope that is here. Thank you for the things that we can now see through your Son of even the images of a promise of a Savior that we know by name now who is Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for these lessons. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for your steadfast love that continues to bring forth your glory every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I titled today's sermon as Advancement Anniversary. 
We like advancement. <laughs> we like the idea of advancement. It would be probably a more positive sermon if I just say, okay, today's my sermon is about advancing the kingdom of God. And hooray, hurrah, and everyone would be encouraged. But I also want to encourage you that it's better that we do have such a sermon titled Advancement and Adversity because it is necessary for us to understand the victory of God in that adversity. If you remember my quote from last week uh, that was in contrast to what we have here is a failure to communicate is that what we really have here is that we have a failure to contemplate and celebrate that God is one who will always demonstrate that he will never fail to dominate. We want to look at these particular examples of adversity so that we may find hope because, just face it, how many in here have never experienced any adversity? How many of you in here expect that after you leave here today that it's likely because you are a Christian and I just got through saying all of these wonderful things about God's love and how he chose you and how he delights in you and how much how precious you are to him. How many of you anticipate that because that is true and if you believe that, that when you will leave here today, you will not face any adversity? Well, I'm glad that none of you are deceived (laughs) and that none of you raised your hand. Because we have both a promise in God's word that is consistent throughout the ages that he will advance his dominion. He will continue to further and bring about his glory. But by the very same words of the very same God, we are also promised that we will face adversity and persecution. In light of what we had in our psalm reading today, I think this quote from Charles Spurgeon is is very good. Christian, remember the goodness of God in the frost of adversity. It is there where we are able to remember the goodness of God. Charles Stanley says, adversity is not simply a tool. It is God's most effective tool for the advancement of our spiritual lives. The circumstances and the events that we see as setbacks or oftentimes the very things that launch us into periods of intense spiritual growth. Once we begin to understand this and accept it as, our spiritual, as a spiritual fact of life, adversity becomes easier to bear. I was talking to Dave a little bit about this last Sunday after the sermon, that you know, when we get older and wiser, it doesn't make the adversity go away <laughs> just because we know about it. But it does make it at least a little bit easier to bear. It makes the recovery time a little shorter. I know that often when I was young, whenever I would face some kind of challenge or adversity, I would moan and groan for long periods of time. I still moan and groan. (laughs) I haven't learned how to avoid that. I haven't matured enough in my faith where I'm like, "Eh, it's not going to bother me. But thankfully, it does seem, it does seem now after 50 years that those periods of moaning and groaning are getting shorter and they're not as daunting and not as hopeless. God is teaching me a time and time again through those tools of adversity. Billy Graham says, comfort and prosperity have never enriched the world as much as adversity has. I thought about trying to say that in the Billy Graham accent, just not going to be able to pull it off. 
Again, what we have here is a failure to contemplate and celebrate that God is one who always demonstrates in both the abundant blessings and the displays of his might, but also in adversity, persecution, and difficulty that he will never fail to dominate. And so today in our sermon today, I want to focus on three particular areas where we see advancement and adversity here in the story of Nehemiah and for us to take that home with us so that we in our own circumstances can be ready and be able to have maybe less burdens to carry in our time of adversity, but not just make it easier for us, but that we actually can celebrate that the Lord is becoming more and more victorious in the midst of adversity. It is prudent that we be praying for the Iran Christians because God is showing off his might in the midst of a place where they have shut down and threatened anyone who would promote Christianity, who would promote God's word, who would promote the name of Jesus Christ. And he is showing forth his might and his mercy by growing his church in the midst of that adversity. The three particular areas I want to look at today in this story, in this portion of the story of Nehemiah, is how there is advancement in adversity in the midst of authority. We see here, well, let me go ahead and give you all three points. I start want to jump in and start preaching on it before I give you the other two points, but I might forget to give you the other two points. So not only an advancement in adversity and authority, but also advancement in adversity in awareness. And I'll explain that a little bit more, but it's important for us to understand that we have to become aware of our circumstances. We have to become aware of our sin. We have to become aware of our weaknesses and our vulnerabilities. And there is a blessing and advancement in having that awareness, but there's also adversity and difficulty that comes along with it. And then lastly, advancement and adversity in the awakening. Not only are we to be aware of our circumstances and aware of our challenges, but we are to awaken and become enlivened. We are to rise up. And often when we rise up, we intend, when we get up, just like every day, when we wake up in the morning, we intend to be able to go about our pursuits. But it, we often find that it is in those times where we do run into walls and difficulties and adversity. So we also see that in our awakening, our rising up and moving forward, that there is also to be certain that in this day, in this age, before the glory and final coming of the Lord, we will face adversity. So first of all, advancement and adversity and authority. We see in verses 9 through 10 that after the conversation and the permission that Nehemiah received from Artaxerxes, not only did he receive permission, he received his blessing, and he also received funding and provision and protection to go about his desire to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so at that particular point, you would anticipate that you would have tremendous confidence and hope that you're going to be able to succeed in your endeavor to do the things that God has placed upon your heart. It says that then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. And that is the name of the province, by the way. I've been reading that in my mind. Every time I read it, I've been thinking about that as the location. But it is not only the location, but it is the name of the province. 
And I gave them the king's letters. He says he gave, he gave them Ar- the letters from Artaxerxes. If you remember in the last sermon that he got letters from Artaxerxes, he was going to come in there with, he was ready. He was going to have the, a written proof that I am ready to go. And then also I have the provisions and, and there shouldn't be anything stopping him. It says, now the king has sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Sanballat here is, from what we can understand from historical accounts, is the governor of Samaria. It was also, as we see later on, he was the father of Elisha, which, which was a priest. We have Tobiah, who was considered to be the governor of the Transjordan Ammon, were the Ammonites, and he was likely an Ammonite himself. These are provinces and sections of territory that surround Israel. And when he had to go through them, even though he had the king's authority and the letters, they were displeased, it said, that he would come for the welfare of God's people. Now, in how this book is written out, there are playing with words, and it's meant to be here that you see these contrasts, this displeasure, this bad, this mal, this malice, in contrast to the endeavor of good, the welfare, the benefit. And for us as Christians here on the New Testament side of all of the scriptures, what we see here is there is this advancement of the good news and the good hope for God's people that is being countered by evil, by displeasure. Now, I want to remind you that these stories should, and I hope that you can catch on to this, you should, going through this particular narrative of Nehemiah, if you are a student of Scripture, whether the Old or the New Testament, other stories should be coming to mind. This is a, 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 almost a template of how God deals with things and how he often brings about salvation for God's people. We often see that when God is bringing forth his salvation for his people, there is some kind of official contrast, obstacle, adversity. And there's usually some kind of conflict about the authority of what is going on here. And it is almost without saying that we also see time and time again how Lord will become victorious in this. And so hopefully we're already very hopeful in this narrative that these are not going to be those who stop the will of God. Nehemiah comes on behalf of the welfare of God's people. He comes in proclaiming good news and seeking the salvation of God's people. He had the authority to go into this, and we see in this particular case, time and time again, that the mind of Nehemiah is focused not so much on the authority of Artaxerxes, but he has said time and time again, and we will see here as we go through this section, that it is God who is drawing him to this. It is by God's authority. I hope it would remind you 
that even when Jesus Christ began his public ministry, thereafter he was baptized, he was given a a public proclamation by his father, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. As his son sought out to save his people to go and to restore the true Jerusalem, the ultimate fulfillment of Jerusalem, he had the authority of his father who was pleased and who was pleased in his son that there was good news embodied upon his own son. And he was told or he told others to listen to him. What was it that when Moses was given the call to go and to rescue the people of Israel. And he said, I can't do this, or you know, I'm, not, I'm not equipped for this. And what am I supposed to tell them when I come to proclaim the good news of their salvation? God said, then tell them that it is I am who sent you. That is all that is necessary to understand that the ultimate authority had been given to Moses to be the savior of God's people. And we know now here from our perspective that this is only a temporal one. And again, this Nehemiah, this one who is a leader for God's people, is only a temporary savior for God's people. It is, he's only a pointer. In a sense, he is a prophecy within himself of the true savior to come. What we are to take from this is that what is our commission? What is our authority? When you wake up in the morning, do you have your papers with you? Do you have your letters of your commendation and commission of what you are to do? It's important that we begin our day, I believe. It's a good discipline for us to be reading our letters, to be reading our commission as often as possible to remind us that there is authority behind our particular callings. You may have to quickly repent once you are reminded of your calling because you may have been reminded in the midst of hearing the command of God that maybe you weren't actually planning that day of fulfilling the very calling and commission of the Lord. That is something that is often my case as well. We have to begin our first step into the day with repentance. Lord, my mind has already been set on just doing whatever else. May it be that I submit to your commission. We have to remember our great commission that was given to us by Jesus Christ and how he even articulated it to us. What did he say in the great commission? He starts out by saying, All authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. Now go. Go. Go and do the thing that I have called you to do. We have this promise of advancement that the one who has all authority has called his church, he has called his Christians to go. We have every certainty of advancement of this kingdom. But the same Savior, the same Lord, also to prepare and to equip and to teach his disciples, the one that he would tell to go and to do this work, he said, you will be hated. And as I am hated, 
you will face persecution. You will face adversity. We see here in this story of Nehemiah, nothing new. We see that Nehemiah is trusting ultimately in the authority that God has given him to go about this particular work. And he is seeing how it is manifested on earth through these earthly authorities. But we are see here in maybe Nehemiah himself, if he paid attention to what happened with Ezra and the others, also would understand throughout the history of God's dealing with his people, there are going to be a Sanballat. There's going to be a Tobiah. There are going to be those who will oppose us. We have all kinds of Sanballats this day. We have all kinds of Tobias. We have them in definitely in official positions in every branch of government, in every section of government, in every jurisdiction of government. And we also have them within the church. Many of us, if not all of us, have them within our own families, extended and then sometimes even immediate. We have, uh oh, <laughs> is that one of ours? <laughs> okay. Anybody playing with their keys? Nope, not me. I don't know. Sometimes when we are moving around in our, I don't know which way it's going. But anyway, I'm going to proceed on. Maybe you all can figure it out. I don't, I don't think it's one of mine. So uh, we have a car alarm going off for those who might be listening to a recording of this. Oh, good. It's gone off. But as we go further here, we also see that there is advancement in adversity and awareness. Verses 11 through 17 we see here Nehemiah going into Jerusalem, and it says that he was there three days, and he arose in the night, I and a few men with me. What's going on here is that, so Nehemiah has made it to Jerusalem, and I don't know why the account of the three days is there, um, other than just that he was given us this kind of, you know, this is his diary of what's going on. Um, and we see here that he told no one that what God had put in his heart to do to, to do for Jerusalem. And then we have this information of that him riding into Jerusalem on an animal, and that there were no other animals, there was no other procession, there wasn't the officers and the horsemen that had been with him when he encountered Sanballat and Tobiah, that when he went into Jerusalem, that it was a type of covert type of activity going in at night, not wanting to create a scene quite yet so that he could inspect and observe and to become aware of the circumstances that were in Jerusalem. I'm going to go ahead and confess to you, and I'm not saying that this has bears any kind of authority whatsoever, but when I'm reading this, and it's just the way my mind thinks, and I think it's fine in light of the fact that Nehemiah is a shadow and a pointer of Jesus Christ, I could not help but to be reminded of the account of Jesus going into Jerusalem. There's symbols of his death and resurrection by the three days, and then he rose up. We also see him going into Jerusalem on what every commentary that I could find would indicate that it was likely a donkey as he goes into Jerusalem. 
And if we remember the very beginnings of Jesus' ministry, that he started out telling everyone not to tell anyone who he was and what was going on, which has always been a mysterious thing to me, but he wanted to wait until the right time, until the fulfilled time, until the time appointed for him to make himself known in the level of fullness that he desired at that time. Here we have Nehemiah going in. He is going in on behalf of a representative of God himself, knowing that God had put on his heart to go in, and he is going to investigate what is going on in Jerusalem. And we see these details about gates and springs. We see the valley gate, the dragon spring, the dung gate, the fountain gate. We see the king's pool. These are all entrances going into Jerusalem or even exits for Jerusalem based upon the function of what is going on there. And then we see a spring and a very interesting name, the Dragon Spring. I don't really know much about it. The more I can study about it, people don't know. They thought maybe it merely meant serpentine because it was, it looked, maybe it was the way it curved. It, it, there's no real clear answer why it was called a Dragon Spring. But we see that there are these gates, these protective borders. We see there's springs and there's water, which is a part of the nourishment and the help and the health of Jerusalem. And we see that everything is in shambles. We see that there's vulnerabilities everywhere. We see that there's destruction everywhere. And from what we can gather from the way that he meandered around through there is that there was probably piles of rubble. He couldn't even go sometime into a straight line. Things were an absolute mess. When we also are given the opportunity to become aware of our condition. It could be all kinds of things. It could be the condition of our nation. It could be the condition of our culture. It could be the condition of our church. But ultimately, when we consider the condition of our own hearts, we often find that there are lots of ruins, lots of vulnerabilities. We sometimes become aware that there is polluted springs, that the things that feed us have been intermixed with things that are not healthy for us. We become aware of just how much trouble we are in. That is a good thing for us to become aware. For Nehemiah to do the work that is necessary on the restoration of these walls, he must first have an understanding of what's really going on. The call of the gospel is for us to first repent and then to believe, we must come face to face with the ruin and the destruction. And we need to come as much as we can in our level of maturity at that time in each moment of our life, just how bad it is. And the maybe unfortunate, fortunate thing is, is that I don't think we ever really get a full grip of just how bad and ruined we are. We miss out on really understanding the depths of our sin and our depravity. God is gracious nonetheless for us to be worked with even in our immature state of understanding our sin. And even in our immature understanding of his grace, he continues to bring us along and day by day and month by month and year by year, as long as we are still alive in this time, we begin to understand both the magnitude of our sin and the magnitude of his grace. 
There is an advancement in that understanding, but it is also the place of adversity. We see both this contrast of this freedom of being able to see the reality of the truth, but we see the reality of the truth. We see how hopeless we really are. And there is an adversity there that Satan will always want to keep in his pocket and bring out to you all the time. Do you remember how wicked you are? Do you remember the things that you have done? Do you remember how worthless you are? Do you remember those times where you were hopeless? I really like thinking about those times, Satan says. Let's go back to that time of hopelessness and just remember how there is no hope for you whatsoever. There is both a blessing in the understanding and awareness of our sin, but there's also an adversity there. And we must always remember the proclamation of God's truth in that time. It could have been that Nehemiah, as he faced these things and he saw just how much destruction there was, he was probably hearing and remembering At least he observed in some way that he was going to have to deal with Samballat and Tobiah. And you might be thinking, this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. Isn't that how it is when we see our sins that we think, wow, the more I understand just how bad off I am, the more I'm like, man, I don't know if I'm ever going to get over this. I don't know if I'm ever going to be able to stop doing these things. Maybe the destruction and the ruin is just beyond repair. And Satan's like, yeah, amen. Beyond repair. But Nehemiah came back. He had not told anyone else what was about to happen yet. He was keeping it to himself. He was observing in a very private and peaceful way, just him and those particular men that were with him. It's often there for us, too, in those private moments of our understanding of just how dark our sin is. That's where it becomes even more real when we're able to contemplate more clearly. We don't have the voices of others sometimes. We have to see it for ourselves. We have to come face to face with it ourselves. There's an encouragement here that in the morn we are able to proceed on and to remember We see here that there is advancement and adversity in the awakening. It says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem, this is in verse 17, sorry. In verse 17, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words that the king had spoken to me. Nehemiah had the opportunity here after he assessed the situation. When he saw just how bad it was. When he saw how much trouble they were in. When he was remembering the derision. When he was remembering the destruction. That what he went to was not like, oh man, this is going to be tough. Or man, we were, this is going, I don't know how we're going to deal with Sambalad. I don't know how we're going to deal with Tobiah. I don't know how this is going to happen. No, he, what he went to do, he says, let us go. Let us rise up. Because 
he knew that he could tell them about the hand of God and how it was good. Because he had good news. He had confidence in the authority, in the promise, in the strength of God. Foremost, even before and greater than the authority of the king. We know from Nehemiah's posture that the authority that he got from Artaxerxes was just a magnification of the glory of God, that God was going to use Artaxerxes' heart even, and mind, and strength, and resources to bring about the salvation for his people. It was time to awake. Come, let us. Time to go. It's time to get up. We have good news. You see the trouble and the ruin? Let's repent. Let's come to grips with what the reality is. But let us believe and let us build because there's not going to be derision for God's people if God has anything to do with it. It is the hand of my God that has been upon me for good. And how did they respond? And they said, let us rise up and build. It was a hearty amen. (laughs) A super duper amen. So let it be. Let us do this. Let us build. Let us go forward. And they strengthened their hands for the good work. They heard the good news. And they anticipated that they could be strengthened for the good work. When we read in Ephesians of the armament of God, what what things do our hands hold on to? This is a question that you can answer, kids. Do any of you adults or children can answer this? When we think about all the armament of God in Ephesians chapter 6, what are the things that we place in our hands? Sword of the Spirit. One more thing. Not a trowel, even though you're thinking, if you're thinking too much Nehemiah, you're thinking trowel. A shield. A shield of what? Faith. And the sword of the Spirit, which is? The Word of God. We too, once we hear the good news, we have every reason to grasp on to the shield of faith. And when we know that we have to go up and to go out and to face our adversity, we must be holding on to the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we should respond with a hearty amen and rise up and move forward. This is the nature, again, this is the template of everything that we see in the Scriptures of how God has called forth his people. We see, if we just go back to the book before in Ezra, it says in Ezra 1, it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go up and to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. They rose up, they set up. The Lord had gave this resurrection of their hearts and their minds and their, their bodies to go and do the work of God. We see in 1 Chronicles 22, it says, Now set your mind and your heart to seek the Lord your God. Arise and build the sanctuary of the Lord God, so that the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the holy vessels of God may be brought into the house, into a house built for the name of the Lord. We are to set our minds and our heart to seek what God is going to do to rise up and to build the kingdom of God. 
We see the prophecy being fulfilled in Ezra and in Nehemiah. When we go back to Isaiah chapter 44, it says, Who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsels of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, She shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, Be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. They had to go back not only to the trowel and also to the sword to protect themselves as they began to prepare for this work. They had to go back to the word of the Lord because it is going to be the fulfillment of that very thing that they saw In the book of Ezra, in the account of Ezra, when Cyrus was used as an instrument for the foundation of the the temple to be built. But then we too, we go back to Isaiah and we hold on, especially in this past Advent season, when we consider the, the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 58, verse 12, it says, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repair of the breach the restorer of the streets to dwell in. Isaiah 61, 4, they shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. We see that God is the one who is going to bring about the restoration of all of his people. Because all of his people can do an assessment of the trouble that they're in. No matter what your line is, no matter what your background is, whether you grew up in the church or whether you were an atheist most of your life, we all are tainted by the sin of our father, Adam. And we're all tainted by the sin of our own hearts. But we see that God is the one who is going to be the one who is going to be the repair of the breach. And he is going to raise up all of the generations of his people for the sake of his glory. So, of course, after he proclaims the good news and he gets the hearty amen and they have risen up to take on the work. God has raised up his people. They're about to move forward. Everything went perfectly from then on. They didn't have any more obstacles. Everything was just peachy. Not true. Immediately, immediately we see, but, but when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and now we got this third guy, Geshem the Arab, heard of it. What we see here is that they're getting more and more surrounded. Geshem was a king of another province that was right there surrounding more and more of Israel. And the interesting thing is, they didn't just go in there fighting. What did they go in there doing right in the very beginning? They jeered. I love that word. (laughs) They jeered at us and despised us. And then they questioned, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, this is definitely an age-old template of the adversary of God's people from the very beginning. 
when God gave the command to be fruitful and to multiply, to go and to take dominion of the world. They had the authority of God. They had the promise and the assurance of God to go and to take over the world and to be fruitful and to bring about glory in the midst of his good. And what was the first thing an adversary did? He used words. He used words to question, to twist, to question God's authority. The adversity is going to come first in the proclamation because it is in the proclamation just as God created the earth with the word and brought about the proclamation of his dominion of the earth with his word. Satan is going to first attack the very thing that God uses in the creation and in the restoration of his people. He's going to question and twist words. This is when they, Satan likes to go back and start digging up some of the thing during the awareness phase for us. Or maybe just remember this or remember these bad things. He inverts everything that God tells us to do. God tells us to remember his goodness and his might and the things that he has done. And then Satan will do a twisting of that and flipping it around and inverting that. Remember this bad thing or question this authority. We see a very common template of Satan's posture in response to the proclamation of good news. In the response and advancement of the good news, we see how Satan responds. He starts out with words. That is so why it's so important for us to understand that our fight is not primarily flesh and blood. Unfortunately, for many of God's people in this day, it becomes to that. And we will see that also in the story of Nehemiah, it comes to a fight of flesh and blood. But the first fight, in the first fight that all Satan needs to worry about is that if he can trip people up with his words, that's where we need to be most prepared. And that's where we must have our defense of our shield of faith and our sword of the spirit is all rooted in the very word, in the very word who is Jesus Christ. And that is exactly how Nehemiah responds. This should have been the response of Eve, should have been the response of me and many of you all in those times where we have succumbed to the lies of Satan. Nehemiah replies, the God of heaven will make us prosper. They were asking, give me proof again. Are you going against the king? He already showed them the letters. He's already showed them the letters of Artaxerxes. And here Satan is saying, well, you're breaking some kind of law. I know that you're not really doing this with authority. You don't have authority to be doing this. And he's not even going to get into wrestling with that question when he already knows the truth because the primary authority that he's working under is the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we, his servants, will arise and build. It is God that is doing this, and we're going to respond by rising up and trusting him in building these walls. 
But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This reminds me of when John the Baptist was proclaiming the good news and preparing the way of the Messiah. He was preaching repentance in faith and the forgiveness of sins. And the Pharisees show up and they start questioning him. They start jeering at him. And he says, who told you to come here? And he calls them, just Jesus calls them in time, your father is Satan. You're talking like Satan. Your words you're using are consistent with Satan. We too need to become accustomed of doing both like Nehemiah and remembering the authority and the promises and the proclamation of God's victory. We also need to know how to speak to Satan. Like Martin Luther taught us, one word will fail you and that word is you're a liar. We need to be able to distinguish between truth and falsehood. That means we must be rooted in his word. We must be rooted in Jesus Christ. To end, I think it's so important that we remember that these particular walls that are being built in the particular temple that was being built in the book of Ezra, that all those walls came down and all of that is gone and, and been destroyed. That, that's no longer there. This was a temporary story for us. But it was a pointer of an eternal story that is in Jesus Christ. We see how Nehemiah is a shadow of Jesus Christ. I know it wasn't written by Nehemiah fully in this way. I doubt that he was given the full insight that how everything he was doing is pointing this way. But it's impossible. It's impossible. And because Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament, I can say this with confidence. And I, I don't know if the three days are there just for that or if the donkey is there just for that. But I do know that how... Nehemiah had his face set toward Jerusalem and trusted in the authority of God and that he was given a position as a temporary savior. He is one who is pointing to an eternal savior in Jesus Christ. Because we see it here in the gospel. We see it in Luke chapter 19. It says that when Jesus in his triumphal entry of Jerusalem, when he came into Jerusalem on a donkey... When he went into Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. He saw the condition of the city. He saw the response of the city. He saw how much trouble that they were in. He saw the destruction of their hearts and their lack of belief and faith. And he said, would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children with you. And they will not leave one stone upon one another in you because you did not know that it was a time of your visitation. Then he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold 
saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. He goes in and he sees something that's far more destructive, far worse than a rubble of walls. See, at this time, the temple was in splendor. Even the disciples said, look, look at these magnificent structures, how beautiful they are. And he said, in three days, (laughs) in three days, it's going to all be rebuilt. And they're like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Here, Jesus knows that these temporary structures are nothing compared to the loss and the brokenness of their hearts. How they made his temple into a, a den of robbers instead of a place of prayer. That is why he wept over it. That is why he weeps over us. He's not concerned about our bank accounts. He's not concerned about our fame. He's not concerned even for even our physical strength as much as he's concerned for our hearts. And so he comes in with his face set on restoration of his people because it is his people that make up the eternal temple, the eternal dwelling place of him. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And guess what they said? Here Jesus comes in on his donkey. He sees and he weeps over. He's been doing all kinds of signs to prove his authority over both the body and of the soul. And these scribes and elders come to him and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, if if we say it's from heaven, he will say, then why do you not believe me? But shall we say from man? Because they were afraid of the people. For they had held that John was really a prophet. The people did. So the answer to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. He's ultimately saying that if you can't answer these questions, if you can't answer the reality of what Nehemiah was able to answer to Samballat and to Tobiah and to the Arab guy, (laughs) that God, it is God's authority. It is by God's authority that these things will be accomplished and we will respond. Everyone will respond. He is authority of heaven and of earth. It is both God's authority and John is a prophet from that God to proclaim the good news to his people. You who do not recognize this, You have no place amongst his people. So we too, are we claiming authority of our own little kingdoms? Are we claiming that we have this little portion of our world and that 
when God comes in and wants to enter in and to destroy those ruins of our heart, how often do we respond, but Lord, this is mine here. What authority do you have over this? What authority do you have over that? The reason why they were displeased so greatly is because they were afraid they were going to lose authority of their little piece of land and piece of pride and property on this earth. And we must be willing to surrender everything to the God of everything. We must respond as we see in the Psalms, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Arise from the ruin. Arise from the destruction. Christ will shine on you. I will close with these words in the song of Andrew Peterson, a song that I used to play a lot on Sunday mornings to my children and gotten out of the habit of doing this. I used to do it every morning during the winter time. I know that the older children are very familiar with it. But listen to the words of what God is really ultimately doing. It says, well, I remember how the sunlight turned to thunder and the people ran for shelter from the rain and the curtain tore and the saints awoke and the whole earth seemed to tremble from the fury of God's anger or was it the fury of his love? There were shadows on the tomb there in the garden and in the mist was rising slowly through the trees. When Mary saw the silhouette on early Easter morning, I remembered how he smiled at her and said, rise, rise and shine. The sun is coming in and the morning light is shining in. Your eyes, oh, rise and shine. The day is coming on and you know the night is gone. So rise. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain tore. The temple had no longer had a use. He had fulfilled everything necessary that that temporary structure had. When Jesus set his eyes toward Jerusalem, he set his eyes toward you. And he said, that just as I have risen, you too are risen. So now you've heard the good news proclaimed. Arise, rise up and trust him. Let us build. Let us hold on to his word and his truth. Let us be prepared for adversity. Let us be ready to call Satan a liar. And let us see his kingdom advance and reign because the victory has been won in the greatest adversity ever faced, which was the cross. And because that adversity is over and that death is defeated, all of these other adversities will also crumble and be torn away. So we have hope. We have a hope to follow on. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, may it be that we would be strengthened by your 